Welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard Podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, head to our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Thank you, Chris. Good afternoon, church. How are you doing? Nice to see you all. Really glad to be with you. Rosie sends a love. She's had to dash because she's preaching at uh, City Centre and she needs to get there to be catching up and praying. So she's um, just slipped off. We've been doing a series in the book of, well, you tell me, where have we been doing a series in the book of? Oh, it's on the screen. (laughs) You get the answer right if you look at the screen. In the book of Hosea, and um, we're looking at the themes found in chapters 4 and 5 of Hosea, so you can follow it in your Bible. Otherwise, if you haven't got a Bible, I'll be mentioning the key verses. But we're looking at the themes and how they find their fulfilment in the life of Jesus. So that's where we're going, two halves really. Book of, bit of time in Hosea, then some time in the life of Jesus. But before we get started, I want to ask you a question. So you need to have a little think on your tables or turn to somebody. And I don't mean to be causing you trauma or upset by this question, but if you want to just answer it honestly or think about it, that would help. Can you think of a time when you've been wronged? Maybe you've experienced an injustice or maybe you've witnessed an abuse of power. Maybe you've been a victim of credit card fraud or identity theft or you've encountered corruption or you've had your car nicked. I mean, just share at the level you want to. I don't want to suddenly cause you trauma by kind of getting in touch with a really tough thing in the past. But if there's something semi-superficial or something that you can think about. Um, so do you want to just uh, have a turn? Anybody ever been wronged, experienced them um, on the receiving end of crime or something something that, like, like that in your story? So just, just for a minute, just have a little turn. Keep it as superficial as you want to and we'll come back to it in a bit. Okay, so we'll, we'll draw it to a, any. I, I heard, I heard, because I was eavesdropping, I heard one person who's had three cars nicked in their lifetime. Any, that's Bill. Any advances on three cars nicked during your lifetime? Okay, Bill gets the prize for the most cars being stolen. <laughs> we'll, come, we'll come back to that sense of injustice and right and wrong and, and how does that all work out? You know, was justice done? Uh, we're going to come back to that in a little bit. Just going to give you a 60 second recap if we can draw those conversations in to a close. That'd be great. <laughs> I've, I've opened up a whole possibility of trauma. Um, this story, Hosea, is a lived parable of love and betrayal. And it's also a collection of poetry and preaching spanning 40 years. That's what the story of Hosea is about. Just a little bit of backdrop for a few seconds is the nation of God's people has been divided into two kingdoms, the north and the south. There's Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And when the Bible refers to Israel, it's really referring to the historical people of Israel that had a faith and relationship with God. It doesn't necessarily correlate to the current political Israel. Now, during Hosea's lifetime, a name to listen out for is Assyria. When you hear Assyria, I want you to think regional superpower oppressive and regional superpower. They extend their influence in every direction. They, they actually come to invade Israel and Judah. Hosea speaks about the rise of Assyria and its invasion. Now, for the first three chapters in this story, Hosea's been living in the north. He's a northerner. Any, any northerners in the room? Anybody born up north? Okay, I've got a few northerners. Now, at um, all of his personal challenges in his relationship with his wife, with his unfaithful wife, would have been witnessed by the community firsthand that have seen it. But then he's moved. For the following 11 chapters, he's become a southerner. Any southerners? <laughs> Anybody who admit to it? You are. <laughs> I'm teasing. Um, he's now living in Judah in the south of it. So we're going to pick it up at chapter 4. His challenge, Hosea's challenge or God's challenge through Hosea is that the people who are meant to be following him have actually broken their covenant with God. The people had forgotten God's faithfulness and they've broken covenant. 
there's a state of spiritual decline. There's this downward spiral and their hearts are getting cold towards God. That's what's taking place. And Hosea um, gives the image of a courtroom. That's why you're asked to think about what's your idea of a judge. The idea is a courtroom and there's this section in my Bible and the, the section in my Bible says the charge against Israel. So the idea is that God, the faithful husband, is confronting the unfaithful bride, that's the people of God. He's setting out a case for this relationship coming to an end. He's confronting the people with the evidence of their unfaithful hearts that have strayed far from him. And we see this in chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has got a charge to bring against you. That's like legal language, isn't it? Against you who live in the land, there's no faithfulness, there's no love, there's no acknowledgement of God. The people had just rejected God. They've gone a bit cold towards him. Any external reference to God's ways had been neglected. And what was dictating them was their passions. That was their guide. Whatever their passion says, they followed. Their appetites took them away from God. The people had rejected the loving leadership of God. They'd chosen independence and autonomy. Autonomy is an interesting word. It's a, it's a word that comes from a couple of Greek words, auto, which means self, and nomos, which means law. And to be autonomous is to be a law unto yourself. When I was very naughty as a kid, my parents said, you're a law unto yourself. <laughs> um, it's not a great thing to have described of you. The philosopher Immanuel Kant you know, popularised the idea that the moral law or truth is not out there, but it's in here. It's not external, but internal. It's not objective, but purely what I think myself. And that's summarised by our cultural slogan, you do you, or you do what works for you. The assumption is that you always know what's best because you're a genius. You are the highest form of authority on planet Earth. Just follow your instincts. I'm being a bit sarcastic, but that's what the Bible's getting at in this bit of the passage. Because it says, Hosea 4, 6, my people, if they follow that mantra, are destroyed. They're destroyed for lack of knowledge. Their rejection of God and thinking they always knew best was actually destroying them. Wow, the stakes are high. That begs the question, hey, do we... Do we make time to get to know God? What are we actually doing to get to know God for ourselves? I think we all get in the room here that what we physically feed on will affect our physical health. We get that. But what we feed our minds with will very quickly affect and shape our values and thoughts. And then values and thoughts, they show up in the choices that we make, in the actions that we do. So our spiritual well-being for you and me as followers of Jesus depends on our diet. What we consume really matters. We need to feed on stuff that feeds our soul. I was listening to a podcast this week and the, the picture on the screen is a chap called Stephen Bartlett. Seen him on the uh, Dragon's Den? He's an entrepreneur, the guy on the right. And then he's interviewing a chap called Professor Scott Galloway and he's a marketing expert, he's an investor and a coach. And the professor guy, the guy on the left there, he says, I often meet young people who come and speak to me and they ask me for advice. And the first thing I do when those young people ask me for advice is I say, can I grab your phone for a minute? He asks for permission to grab their phone and I open up the app that reviews screen time for social media use and for games. And then I look at search history and then I see what they're consuming and I can tell them exactly what they are becoming. That can be quite a wake-up call. We really do become what we consume. That's the professor's comment on life. 
So Hosea has addressed the people, and now he turns his focus to the leaders. The priests, who were meant to be in charge and teaching, were neglecting their duty as teachers of the people. They were called to be the nation's spiritual educators, informing and and instructing, but they were failing badly. They were stumbling, and because they were stumbling, the people were stumbling. That's what it says in verse 5. You stumble day and night, and the prophets stumble with you. So God confronts them through Hosea the prophet. It's a bit like what Jesus said one time. Jesus said, you know, you, you're like blind guides trying to lead other people. Both of you will end up doing what? Falling into a pit. Having reviewed the evidence, God is in this courtroom language, is giving his verdict, his judgment, if you like. And he says this, because you, the priests, have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. They got fired. That was the day they got fired by God. Do you know, it's a weighty responsibility to do anything in leadership, to lead God's people. None of us who lead, for those of us who lead, we're stepping up to be judged more strictly, not just by people, but by God himself. So pray for your sight pastors, pray for Chris and Rachel, pray for all of you who lead small groups. It says this in James chapter 3, and this kind of focuses the mind a bit. Not many of you should presume to be teachers because you who teach will be judged more strictly. That kind of gets your brain focused when you're doing some sermon prep, I can tell you. (laughs) And one or two Timothy speaks about the qualities that are needed for leadership. Servants not seeking the spotlight, character more than charisma, godliness over gifting. But to aspire to lead, like David and Ben have just done, and and that story we heard earlier, was a great thing. But we see in this story a progression. It's like a a downward spiral that's quite depressing. God sets out the case as if in court, and then he expresses his judgment on the people and then specifically the priest. Now, we don't like concepts like judgment. We don't run towards a phrase like judgment because we can feel a bit uncomfortable. We don't like it so much. It's not an easy topic to talk about judgment. But friends, it's in the book and it's also in our conscience, the idea of judgment. Let me just talk that through for a second. You see, choices have consequences and God demonstrates that he is both just and he's willing to judge and if we're indifferent towards him we say back off just keep at arm's length then that has implications for us and our relationships with him remember remember where we started we just started with a question I asked you to recall a time when you've been wronged a lot of emotion in the room a lot of feeling everyone had a story it seemed like it's not easy is it when that comes to mind because we want when we've been wronged we want justice And we want a judgment that is going to be fair and right. We want that thing to come to closure well. There's something in us that wants that. We want that for others, but we don't want it quite so much for ourselves when we've done the wrong. But where does that idea of justice come from? Where does that idea of that inner sense of right or wrong come from? Do you know that very question bothered somebody by the name of C.S. Lewis? He was an atheist for a number of years and he was just wrestling the thing through about right and wrong. And where does that even that sense come from? And he said this, just as a line can only be judged crooked when compared to a straight line. So an act or a person or a situation can only be condemned as unjust when measured against a prior standard of perfect justice from which it deviates. And God is the only perfect standard of justice. Hosea chapter 4 shows that God has set the case and he was going to judge. That's what he's doing. How did he do that? How did that judgment look in this story? Well, do you know, throughout the Bible, God has this idea of, in response to our own rebellion and persistent disobedience, he gives people over to their own desires. 
It's often linked with allowing God to us, allowing God, sorry, God allowing us to experience the consequences of our own choices. God's like a loving parent who's trying to teach his children, hey, don't mess with fire. Although it's mesmerizing, don't mess with fire. And for a long time, if you're a parent, you can keep putting your child's hand back. But in the end, when you're not present, if they disregard your words, they have the freedom to touch the thing they're drawn to, the thing they want. And then, if they do, they'll experience the consequence of that action. Now, God's people in this story are like stubborn kids disregarding the loving words of Father God. Persistent disobedience can actually damage us. If we choose to turn our backs on God, we can be ensnared by our own choices. That's exactly what's happened. Well, how does judgment rock up in this story? I mean, it's not an easy concept, but I think it's there in three different bits. Barrenness, brokenness, betrayal. There's a barrenness in the land. The harvest has failed. And at verse three, they've looked to fertility gods and all sorts of weird things for food and harvest, but they get what those idols deliver, which is Zippo, nothing. Then brokenness. There's this painful story of of, of um, betrayal in their hearts. They've endorsed and engaged in sexual relationships with shrine prostitutes and all sorts of stuff. And then their kids copy their example and there's sexual oppression, sexual brokenness, adultery and prostitution present in their families. It's heartbreaking. And then there's this betrayal. There's this thing where they, they kind of, it talks about Assyria, remember that superpower. Uh, they re- repeatedly warned by God, don't connect with them, don't look to them for help, look to me, I'm your source. They little suspect that Assyria will be the very empire that will ultimately destroy them. So they wrongly turned to Assyria and then Assyria turned on them and tore them to pieces. That's what's being mentioned in this story. Well, okay, that's all well and good. I get that. But where's this relentless love of God bit in the story? How does that make sense? Well, the whole Bible really has one overarching story. And that story points forward to Jesus. The Old Testament prophets that we read about, they looked forward with this lens into the future to the Messiah coming. 700 years before Jesus actually came, Isaiah, we hear this at Christmas a lot, Isaiah spoke of um, Jesus. He took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished and stricken by him, afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we're healed. We're like sheep that have just wandered off, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So these people in this story are broken covenant with God, but God in his kindness sent Jesus. That's what this is about. This story is not just contained to Hosea and a a one of brokenness, but it has the full story of God in it. Jesus came to establish a new covenant and we see the relentless love of God expressed in the life of Jesus. To think that bridegroom bride analogy that's in the story of Hosea, Jesus is the bridegroom sent by his father to find a bride. And those who respond to the love of God in Jesus are brought into this relationship with him. And we, along with everyone else who accept Jesus, become part of his church. And the church is known by the name the Bride of Christ. So the central event in God setting up this new covenant that the Old Testament show they broke was this new arrangement of Jesus coming. I just want to read a few verses from the Bible that help us get the sense of how the arc of God's story finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And these questions of judgment and justice find their expression at the cross. Romans 5 says this, Christ proved God's passionate or relentless love for each of us by dying in our place while we were still lost and ungodly. For through the blood of Jesus, we have heard the powerful declaration, you are now righteous in my sight. 
And because of the sacrifice of Jesus, you will never experience the wrath of God. Wow, that's a promise. If you ever sit there and think, is God punishing me because I've done something done in my life? Is he kind of working out some weird scheme in my life? If you come into the life and relationship with Jesus, that's never our story because the wrath of God falls on Jesus and not on us. Romans puts it this way. God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problems of sin as something remote and unimportant. In his son Jesus, he personally took on the human condition. He entered the disordered mess of our struggling humanity in order to put it right once and for all. Jesus took our place. John the Baptist, when he was around, saw Jesus and said, Oh look, there's the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. He knew that Jesus was that perfect offering to God to clear the way for us to get to know him. Just a few things that we see in the idea of the cross. We can't reduce the cross just to one dimension or one simple story or explanation. There's a few ways of understanding it, like you might see a scene from a bunch of different vantage points. The cross for us is, for sure, it's an example of self-sacrificial love. Jesus said, you know, greater love has no one than he laid down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus does for us. But it's a moment of victory. There's stuff that comes against us, oppression and dark forces. But it says that Jesus' death and resurrection was a demonstration of his victory over that stuff. When Christ died on the cross, he destroyed the power of evil and the evil one. The other dimension of the cross is that it's Jesus sort of paying and clearing a debt. Jesus said one time, for the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That idea of a ransom is like a payment. So the idea is this, that Jesus is settling a debt to his Father that we owed, not that he owed. Jesus wasn't settling any debt that he owed to God because he was without sin. Jesus paid on our behalf a debt that we owed to God. And that's why Jesus on the cross said, It is finished, which is an accounting term for paid in full. Billy Graham once was, uh, he was an evangelist guy, and he was uh, once on a boat traveling, uh, going to uh, across the North Atlantic. And uh, he looked out of his porthole, and he was a bit freaked out because he saw this impending storm. Anybody caught in a really bad storm recently? (laughs) He saw this horrendous storm, not seen anything like it. And he said, I was certain that we on that ship were in for a terrible night and a terrible storm. I ordered breakfast to be sent to my room and I spoke to the steward about the storm. But the steward said, oh, Mr. Graham, there's nothing to fear. We've already come through that storm. It's behind us. He went on to say, if we've trusted Jesus, we've already come through any storm of God's judgment because it happened at the cross. Romans 8 says this, the case is closed. There's no accusing voices. There's no condemnation for those who are joined with Jesus. Just in the last couple of minutes, I want to tell a couple of stories. A few years ago, I met a man who was in our church family and his story mirrored that of Hosea's. He was in a lot of mess. He'd broken his marriage vows. He'd had an affair and it was ripping him apart. His wife was devastated. His marriage was hanging on by a thread. And he was doing everything possible to try and fix it. But the guilt and the shame and the pain was crushing. And one day he came forward and he took communion. And for the first time when taking communion, he grasped the significance of what Jesus had done. This is not just a ritual or a routine. This is personal. This is for you. When we said, this is my body broken for you, my blood shed for you, he suddenly thought, this is for me. This is, this is a reset for me. Forgiveness lifted off his shame 
and empowered him to faithfully serve and love his wife and over a period of years to rebuild his marriage. That's a pretty extreme story, but we've all been a law unto ourselves. We've hurt others, we've hurt ourselves, and we've turned away from God. We've wandered off, and we've made some bad choices under pressure. That's all of our story. Whether we think it was as extreme as that guy I mentioned, we've all done stuff. Tell me, you've been watching the news. What have um, Welsh Water got in trouble for this week? Anybody know what Welsh Water got in trouble for this week? There you go. Welsh Water have got in trouble for pumping untreated sewage for the last 20 years into rivers in Wales. Naughty Welsh Water. Now, if I was to say, oh, I've got some water here. Anybody fancy a drink? <laughs> here we go. Uh, you're looking a bit, looking a bit thirsty, Lisa. Do you want some? Um, do you want a little glass of water there? It's lovely water. Um, just out of a river in Wales. It's like fresh. I got, it's like I got a deal in Sainsbury's. Some bottled Welsh water. <laughs> you fancy a glass? <laughs> you probably wouldn't touch it, would you? Not with a barge for because you're thinking, hang on a minute. No, listen, I can guarantee that is 99% pure water. I can't guarantee it for the 1%, but 99% that's pure. You'd go, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, if I convince you it's 99% pure, the, the possibility of 1% sewage in there would mean I am not going to touch that. Do you know, it's either pure or it's not. And it's the same, honestly, it's the same with us. Whether you think you've done something horrendous or something minimal, we're either pure or we're not. And in God's sight, we're not pure. But Jesus is. And that's why when we put our trust in what he's done and not what I do, then we have a new start with God. Just I want to finish by saying this, that, you know, in Jesus we see the relentless love of God. And it's for every single one of us. When we come and take communion, my invitation is if you said yes in your heart to Jesus, run to that moment with a celebration and a joy in your heart because that's the moment we remind ourselves quite what Jesus has done for us. The leaders in Hosea's day were blind guides walking in darkness and they couldn't help the people into truth. Honestly, Jesus is the only leader who deserves your full allegiance and complete trust. And he said this, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you'll have the light that leads to life. Like the people in Hosea's day, it's very easy to turn the wrong way in a time of crisis and look for help to the wrong things. What they turned on, turned on them. But Jesus promises something altogether better. Turn to me, come to me when you're weary and burdened and I will give you true rest. Learn from me. Because I'm gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. Just as we finish, in a culture that says you do you, we do Jesus. We're learning to follow Jesus. God is not surprised by our faithless, faithful, faithlessness or rebellion. And his love will never depend on our behaviour or our performance. We can be absolutely rock solid and secure in the love of God. Because it's rooted in an unchangeable decision for Jesus to love us. And I love that's been clearly displayed at the cross. Today, I think God's inviting all of us in a fresh way to lay down our lives at the foot of the cross, to fully trust him that he's done everything needed to bring us home to God. He wants our lives to be changed by the relentless love of God. I wonder if Tim can come forward. It says in the book of John that to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And just whatever our story, it's always good just to either come to this moment with a fresh thank you to God, or even just to say, have I actually received Jesus? Have I believed in his name? Because our basis of having a faith is not trying harder or trying to impress God with a few religious rituals. It's recognizing that what he's done is absolutely everything. And my confidence and my hope is 
centered on him, if we receive him and believe in his name, then we have that right to become children, to experience the relentless love of God being at work in our hearts and lives. We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. We'd love to welcome you to one of our gatherings. We meet in multiple locations at multiple times on Sundays, as well as in midweek small groups across the city. More information on all of these can be found at our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and God bless.